Job chapter 23, we read in verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would put strength in me. There the righteous might dispute with him. So should I be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined, neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. For he performeth the thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Therefore am I troubled at his presence. When I consider him, I am afraid of him. For God maketh my heart soft, and the Almighty troubleth me. Because I was not cut off before the darkness, neither hath he covered the darkness from my face. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. His discourse actually continues into the next chapter. But we'll end our reading right here. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Interesting to note, isn't it, from the last verse, because I was not cut off before the darkness, neither hath he covered the darkness from my face. Job's desire, you could say, was that he had never been born. You might remember that when this whole debate begins... Uh, the challenge that the devil brings to God is that he can provoke uh, Job to curse God to his face. He comes pretty close because in the opening chapters, what you, you find Job, after seven days of silence, you find Job being the one who speaks first, and the thing that he expresses in his first speech is that the day in which he was born would be cursed. So he's, he's come very, very close, hasn't he, in that, to cursing God to his face. I want to call your attention today to verse 3 of chapter 23, where in his complaint Job says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to a seat. Many of you are familiar, I'm sure, with the story of Martin Luther's appearance 
before the diet at Worms, or Worms, as it's sometimes pronounced. It was a monumental occasion, a defining moment in the Protestant Reformation. Luther actually appeared twice before the Diet, and the, by Diet we speak of that government body uh, of uh, officials, uh, Catholic officials, uh, civil officials, they were all there. The first day when he appeared before the Diet, he was asked whether a collection of books piled high on a table were books that he had written. And then he was asked whether or not he would retract the content of those books. Through the advice of a friend, Luther requested that the titles of the books be read. That only makes sense, doesn't it? If you don't even know what books they are, how can you say whether or not you wrote them? So he called for the titles to be read, and they were. And Luther then acknowledged that these were indeed his works, books that he had written. As for the second issue, whether he would retract uh, the content of the books, Luther requested and was granted a delay of one day to ponder and pray over his answer. Before his next appearance before the Diet, and that was the appearance in which he would utter his famous words, Here I stand, I can do no other. I say before that appearance, after his first appearance, going into the night before that second appearance, Historians report for us that Luther entered into a period of intense spiritual struggle. He had known all along that he was dependent on God, dependent on God's power, and now he had the sense as if God had abandoned him, that God was nowhere to be found. How strongly he cried to his God that morning, before he was to appear again before the Diet, his prayer, according to the historian Daubonnier, is to be found in a collection of documents relative to his appearance at Worms. One of his friends had no doubt overheard his prayer and recorded it, and it's been preserved for posterity. And in that prayer, Luther is heard to exclaim, O God, my God, hearest thou me not? My God, art thou dead? No, thou canst not die, thou hidest thyself only. Lord, where stayest thou? O my God, where art thou? I am ready to lay down my life for thy truth, for it is the cause of justice, it is thine. I will never separate myself from thee, neither now nor through eternity, And though the world should be filled with devils, though my body, which is still the work of thy hands, should be slain, should be racked on the wheel, cut in pieces, reduced to ashes, my soul is thine. Yes, thy word is my assurance of it. My soul belongs to thee. It shall abide forever with thee. Amen. O God, help me. Amen. What we find in Luther, in that instance, we may also detect in other saints as well. Those periods where God just can't seem to be found, 
We are left with a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. And so Job exclaims in verse 3, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. And again, if you look a little further down, chapter 23, look at it with me, verses 8 and 9 now. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. Others in the Bible utter similar complaints. We read from Psalm 77. I pointed out that this is a complaining psalm, a psalm of Asaph. Listen again to the words of verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord cast off forever, and will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Psalm 13 and verse 1, this is a psalm of David. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? And in Psalm 89 and verse 46, this is a psalm of Ethan the Ezraite, And he utters, The same words, maybe, with David's psalm in mind. How long, Lord, wilt thou hide thyself forever? Shall thy wrath burn like fire? So you have three different cases with three different authors or composers, if you will, from the psalms. And we find the same complaint, which amounts to this. Where is the Lord? Now, I know that we have to be careful in dealing with this phenomenon that we don't fall into the pitfall of liberalism. The basic difference between orthodox biblical Christianity and compromising and apostate liberalism is that orthodox Christianity sees the Bible as the story of God-seeking man, not man-seeking God. Liberalism believes that religion is the ongoing search for God. (coughs) A search that is never completely satisfied, but a search in which you grow as you pool together available resources from all the religions of the world in a never-ending quest to find God. There is a sense, and we do well to affirm it, in which the Christian has found God and has found Christ. As the hymn writer expresses it, afterwards I knew it was the Lord seeking me. I sought the Lord and afterwards I knew it was the Lord seeking me. The Lord has found us and by his grace we have found him. And we've closed in with Christ, and we've enjoyed fellowship with Christ, and spiritual communion with Christ. The joy of his salvation we have known as our strength. The peace that he imparts passes all understanding, and his love knows no bounds. And because of these tremendous spiritual benefits, it makes it even more difficult and troublesome when his presence seems to Depart from us. 
Oh, let the storms rage, we exclaim, as long as I can perceive Jesus crossing the stormy sea to meet me and help me. But when the storms are raging and we can't seem to perceive him and he is nowhere to be found, then we become most troubled. This was Job's worst affliction. More terrible than losing his possessions, worse than losing his health and his family, this awful sense of having lost God. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. It's worth noting while we're on this subject that this was the crowning penal affliction of Christ's sufferings. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in all things we are being conformed to Christ. So even in the times when God seems to have forsaken us, we can certainly draw this much comfort from it. There is a Christ-likeness to that because Christ himself was forsaken for a time of his Father. But what's a Christian to do under such circumstances? Well, that's the issue I want to take up this morning because Job is very instructive to us in this regard. Truly, God's testimony of Job is true when he says there is none like him in the earth. So what should we do when God can't be found? That's the question I want to address this morning. What should we do when God can't be found. And I want Job to answer this question for us today. His example shows us two things we can do when God can't be found. First of all, set your cause before him. Set your cause before him. Look with me, if you would, at verse 4 now, chapter 23. Job's words, I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. John Calvin gives what I think is a very interesting analysis of the debate between Job and his friends. Calvin sees Job's friends taking a poor cause and arguing it well. And he sees Job taking a good cause, but arguing it poorly. In principle, however, Job's practice in this chapter is a good one and a proper one. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. The problem in Job's case is that during his arguments, he would seek to justify himself. I don't believe that this would have been his practice ordinarily, but it certainly became his practice in the course of this debate. The extremity of his circumstances, as well as his friends provoking him, compelled him to justify himself. I know I've said this before with regard to the book of Job, that if you're ever dealing with Christian counselors, or if ever a Christian finds himself compelled to go into counseling, 
He would do well to do an in-depth study of the book of Job because that book would teach him the awful effects of misguided counsel or misapplied counsel. And that's what you have in the book of Job. It's not that what his friends say is false, but what they say just doesn't have any bearing on the case as it pertains to Job. So Job was provoked into justifying himself, but in stating that he would order his cause before God and fill his mouth with arguments, he's demonstrating what could be called a New Testament precept of coming boldly before the throne of grace. I knew some while back I've referred to this sermon on numerous occasions. I knew that I had in my library somewhere a sermon by Spurgeon that dealt with this practice of ordering your cause before God. Well, I found that sermon. It's entitled, Order and Argument in Prayer. What surprised me, however, was the discovery that this text in Job was the very text that Spurgeon used in that sermon. Ordering your cause or order an argument in prayer. Order your cause before God. That's a good exhortation, you know, under any circumstances of life, but especially during times of trial and affliction. In a sense, this is exactly what Martin Luther did before he appeared before the Diet. I'm standing for the truth. I'm defending your justice. This is the cause of the gospel, Luther argued in prayer. And in order to argue and order your cause before God, you must first make sure that your cause is in alignment with God's cause. God's cause is redemption. Christ's cause is the gospel. And so long as we can, like Paul, identify the gospel of Christ as my gospel, then we're in a good position to order our cause before God. We can order our cause, for example, for the salvation of our children. Lord, thou hast given the promise that salvation is to you and to your house. Honor the promise. Honor the gospel. Honor your son and visit my house with salvation. You should order the cause of salvation as a present reality in the lives of your children as well as in your own life. Paul tells the Galatians that Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. I love that explanation in Galatians. I don't know if there's any other statement quite like it that really brings the gospel down to present-day application. Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us, not just from an eternal condemnation that's to come, but from this present evil world. That's a good argument, then, to take to God in prayer. Lord, save my children from this present evil world. There is so much in this world to lure them away from thee. The devil lays his snares. The world exerts its pressure. 
Lord, deliver my loved ones from this present evil world. We can order the cause of our desire to see God's kingdom advance. Lord, thou hast taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It must be thy will, O Lord, for thy kingdom to advance. Hear and answer prayer, and let us make great strides forward in the cause of thy kingdom, O Lord. Indeed, God, send us revival so that thy kingdom will advance and dispel the darkness that engulfs our land. Good arguments to take to the Lord in prayer. Spurgeon lists some good points when it comes to ordering our cause before God. He tells us that we should plead with God his attributes. Plead his attributes. Those are his characteristics. It magnifies God's love to save souls. It magnifies God's righteousness to send revival. It magnifies God's holiness when the inhabitants of the land are taught to fear him. Take that to the Lord in prayer. Make that your cause. Order your cause before him for those things. We should also plead the promises of God when we order our cause. Lord, thou hast promised to build thy church. Lord, thou hast promised that all thy children would be taught of the Lord, and great would be the peace of thy children. We should order our cause by pleading the great name of God. This was the practice of Moses when he pleaded with God to continue with Israel. You remember in the time of wilderness wanderings that God was on the brink of saying, forgive this nation, Moses, I'll start over with you. To which... Moses would respond in prayer, Lord, if thou forsakest these people now, what will the Egyptians say? You see what he's doing? You see what Moses is doing there? He's ordering his cause before God. He is concerned with the reputation of God. What kind of reputation are you going to have, Lord, among the Egyptians? If you abandon this people now, they will say God was not able to bring this people to their desired haven. That's a powerful case to bring before the Lord, and it's one that the Lord responded to. We can plead the sorrow of God's people. Jeremiah is a great master of this art. We can plead the past, what God has done in days gone by. The psalmist exemplifies this practice. Psalm 44 in verse 1, We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days in the times of old. Perhaps most importantly, we can plead the sufferings, the death, the merit, and the intercession of Christ. The things we plead for, Salvation and revival and the advancement of God's kingdom and the dispelling of the darkness and turning back of evil. We don't deserve any of those blessings. I've said it countless times. God cannot be blamed for lifting his hand off this nation and giving it to its sin. But Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy of revival. 
Christ is worthy of the tide of evil being turned back. If we would order our cause before God, therefore, we must make much of Christ in our praying. So when God can't be found, what are we to do? Order your cause before him. Fill your mouth with arguments and go boldly to the throne of grace. The very thing that Job was doing. Secondly, and finally, we should keep faith before him. When God can't be found, keep faith before him. Nevertheless, look with me at verse 10. Now in chapter 23, verse 10. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job couldn't find God. He had no sense of God's favor or presence. He wanted an explanation from God. Interesting to note, he never did get that explanation. When God appears to him at the end of the book, it's not to explain himself, it's to call on Job to give an account. That's always the way it is. God never gives account to us, we give account to him. Uh, this book teaches that very clearly. So he wanted an explanation, he, he wouldn't receive one. What's a person to do in such circumstances? And here Job sets a very good example for us. He shows us that when God seems far from us, we should nevertheless keep faith. I can't find him, Job says in verse 3. But even though I can't find him, I am sure that he knows where I am. He knows the way that I take. <coughs> Here's an example then of keeping faith, persevering in the faith. We're tempted at times to consider that we must be following cunningly devised fables. There's nothing to our religion. God has been gone for so long that Christians conclude that all there really is to the Christian life is giving assent to a certain set of dogmas and following a certain code of conduct and how well you follow it or how deep your convictions are regarding your creed really doesn't matter because God, if he even exists at all, takes no interest in you or has no regard toward you. We're tempted to think that way at times. And the devil will certainly do his best to lead you into that mode of thinking. Remember the issue in this conflict taking place in Job's life? The issue is the integrity of his faith. He holds fast his integrity. God says to the devil back in chapter 2, he still believes in God. He still submits to God. He still blesses the name of the Lord. Even though God gave the devil permission uh, to afflict him and to bring him to within an inch of death. The devil's aim is to defile or deaden our faith. He did not succeed with Job. Though he be removed from my senses and I don't understand his dealings and I have the desire to dispute his treatment of me, 
Yet I know that he knows the way that I take. Job's faith was still intact. And his faith enables him to continue to be a man of vision. Even though he has gone through prolonged periods of thinking that all is lost, that the grave is more desirable than life, that it would have been better never to have been born at all, still from deep within there comes faith that there is a purpose, faith that God has not forgotten him, faith that tells Job that God's purpose will cause him to come forth as gold. Verse 10. I love the verses in Scripture that can give vision to the believer, even in the most dire circumstances. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7 is such a text, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. God views the trial of your faith then as being something that's very precious. He sees it that way because he has an aim in that trial, that your faith might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Christ. Can that really happen? Can poor and seemingly insignificant Christians be found under praise and honor and glory before Christ's throne? We're so conscious of our sins and our shortcomings and our failures. Others have done great things, we say. Others have persevered admirably. But your trials seem to magnify your sins and your shortcomings and your failures more than your faith. How can we think that our faith will be found under praise and honor and glory? Well, the answer is, of course, that it will be found under praise because amid the seasons of distress, when God seemed far away and your sins seemed magnified and all seemed helpless and hopeless and the grave seemed more desirable than life and you wondered if the whole thing was even real, you nonetheless held on to Christ. Your hope was still in him, that you would be found by God in him, not having your own righteousness, which is of the law, but having the righteousness, which is of God, by faith. Oh, you would do well to follow Job. Consider the patience of Job, James tells us near the end of his epistle. And that word, patience, consider the patience of Job. That word patience is a word that means endurance. You could read it this way. Consider the enduring or persevering faith of Job. I like the definition for that word patience. It means, according to one Greek lexicon, steadfastness, constancy, endurance. In the New Testament, the characteristic of a man who has not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. 
Continue then, believer, to hold on to Christ, to hope in Christ, to wait on Christ, to keep faith in Christ. Believe that he sees you, even when he seems far from you. Believe that he has a purpose of grace in your life, even when nothing that seems to be going on around you can make any sense to you. Believe nevertheless that though it makes no sense to you, don't ever think it doesn't make sense to God. It does. He has a purpose in it. Job gives us some very practical guidelines for keeping faith. You look at verses 11 and 12 in chapter 23. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Now, I don't think for a moment that Job is suggesting that he has uh, perfectly lived by the rule of the law. I believe that Job had an awareness of the gospel. When I taught the book of Job many years ago now in a Sunday school class here in this church, I pointed out that in the very first chapter, which lays the foundation for the entire book, what do you find Job doing? You find him offering bird offerings for his children on a daily basis. There's the gospel. There's the sacrifice. There's what pointed to the great sacrifice to come. And Job was aware of it. And he was aware uh, of the sinfulness of man. Rather interesting how in that first chapter, his fear for his children evidently didn't pertain to their outward conduct. That appeared to be in order. Everything appeared good and right. They had the external appearance of being upright. But Job was afraid that they may have cursed God in their hearts. He recognized, didn't he, how deep the sinfulness of man runs and what need there is for a substitute sacrifice. So he was well aware of the gospel. When he says he's keeping to God's ways, he's keeping to the way of the gospel. Keep to his way then yourself, which is the way of the gospel. The just shall live by faith, Habakkuk tells us. A text, by the way, that is quoted three times in the New Testament. That's a study of its own. Maybe we'll take up sometime if I haven't taken it up already. And esteem the words of his mouth more than your necessary food. Time in the word, time in prayer, aligning your cause with his, and then ordering your cause before him in prayer, keeping to his ways, the way of salvation, by grace through faith, and keeping to his word. Through the use of these things, we can be sure that we will make it. We will make it, not because of our own strength of will, but on the basis of Christ being our surety, and Christ having a purpose in every circumstance he sees fit to put you through, 
Believe, dear Christian, that no matter how far away he seems, and no matter how magnified your own corruption is in your eyes, God will bring you through, and you will come forth as gold. One of the reasons I've always been fascinated with the book of Job is because it shows us what you could call the course plan of redemption. I remember again when I was going to take up the book of Job to teach in Sunday school. Uh, It it was during a, a long car ride. I think I drove to Greenville for some reason, down to South Carolina. And all the way down there, uh, I'm thinking, and I was challenged by Dr. Allison on this. Why the book of Job? Why did God give us this book? Uh, Why does he focus, arguably, more attention on this one man that we know little or nothing about outside of the book? Why are there so many chapters devoted to this man, more so than perhaps any other man uh, in the Bible? Why Job? And I was making my trip to Greenville, and I I was reminded, actually, uh, of a Hebrew course that I took uh, in college. Took the Hebrew language. Hebrew is an unusual language. I don't know how much you know about Hebrew. You read everything backwards. You start at the back of the book, and you're reading right to left. That's how Hebrew works. Not only is the language different, but the way they teach the language down at Bob Jones was different as well. When they teach you Greek, it's as if they they take you by the hand and they lead you into the woods. Gradually, deeper and deeper, you're learning vocabulary, you're learning grammar, building up these rules, these principles, as you go deeper and deeper. When it comes to Hebrew, and this is the way they explained it, Mike Barrett, this was his uh, favorite thing to explain, that when it comes to Hebrew, we take you over the deepest part of the woods and we drop you right into the densest part of the woods and it becomes uh, your uh, cause then to find your way out. And the way that they do this is by dumping it on you with such uh, great intensity that you can't possibly keep up. I remember at the nine-week mark, I believe it was the nine-week mark, and the teacher came into the class. He's got this big smile on his face. He says, brethren, you ought to be thrilled. You are so getting your money's worth in this course. You have had a year's worth of Hebrew by any other standard. We're only at the nine-week mark. Now, nobody was thrilled by that because nobody sensed that they had learned anything that had been dumped on us so fast. But then he said something to us, and I've never forgotten it, that might have benefited me more spiritually than what, uh, what little Hebrew I learned benefited me. When this teacher went on to say, now I, I, I know that you feel buried. I know that you're feeling a sense of helplessness in this. We've dumped it on you so fast and so hard and heavy that you can't keep up. He says, I don't want you to worry about that. We're going to go back now and we're going to sort out some things again. And by the time we get through it again, by the end of the year, uh, you will have learned a great deal of Hebrew. 
Once I understood the course design, I was no longer frustrated by my inability to keep up. I was where I was supposed to be. I'm supposed to be dumb. I can do that. <laughs> and, and sure enough, I was buried. We all were. But when I understood the course design, I had the patience to persevere in the rest of the course. Bring it back to the book of Job. What is the purpose of the book of Job? It's to show us the course design, the plan of redemption. And the plan of redemption is that you will suffer. And it absolutely amazes me why some people find this so mysterious. And some people uh, devote uh, countless hours of uh, poring over the book of Job, looking for the cause in Job uh, that led God to punish him, so to speak. Really, it's quite simple. When you go back to, I believe it's that second chapter, where the devil is before Job for, uh, before God for the second time, and God says to the devil, uh, you see how he maintains the integrity of his faith, although you provoke me to afflict him without cause? There's the answer. There was no cause in Job that led to God treating him the way he did. It wasn't because of some sin on the part of Job that brought his suffering upon him? No. You stop and think about it for a moment, and the answer is really very simple. You're going to suffer because your Savior suffered, and you're being conformed to him. That makes it pretty easy, doesn't it? You're going to suffer because your Savior suffered. And part of being conformed to the image of Christ is being conformed to the image of his death. Paul writes to the Corinthians. God wants you in some small measure to be able to relate to his son and all that his son went through. So the book of Job, it shows us the design of the course, the course plan for redemption. You will be tried, and in the course of your trial, you'll find yourself compelled at times to say, as Job did, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. There are times when you think he's removed, and that season may be a lengthy one. Rather fascinating to raise the question, and I don't know that there's a precise answer to it, but how long did Job's trial last? You can't say for sure that we're, we're given one uh, time indicator, and that is that when his friends arrived on the scene, we are told back in the early chapters that they sat before him in total silence for an entire week. I expect this trial probably went for quite a time, and I think I can say conclusively it went longer than Job thought it ought to go. And so will that be the case with you and with me. Oh, if the book of Job teaches us anything, it teaches us that God puts in the ingredients to our trials, and he does this with each one in mind. Some people, you know, I find this a little bit humorous. 
when I announced those years ago, we were going to teach Job. We're going to go through Job in Sunday school. And the thought of some people, this is almost a superstitious, carnal type response that you have to get a hold of. Oh, no, we're going to study Job. We must be in for terrible things down the road. And we've got to study this book now to prepare for all sorts of awful things that are going to happen to us. And do those awful things happen? Well, I mean, how many people do you know that went through what Job went through? In a day lost his possessions, in a day lost his family, then followed up by losing his own health, feeling that God has deserted him. I don't know of many that have gone through what Job went through, but the point here is that it is God himself that mixes the ingredients to our trials and afflictions. And he does this uh, with an interesting promise we can claim from uh, Corinthians. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. The challenge and the problem comes when um, how much are we able to bear? And who makes that decision? Well, God knows. God knows what you're able to bear. If you leave it up to you, oh Lord, we have passed the mark of what I'm able to bear in my own judgment. The Lord knows. And he keeps his own. And he does bring us safely through. And he does have a purpose in conforming us to his son. Be assured, dear believer, that even though he may seem at times to be far from you, he nevertheless knows the way that you take. So keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking, keep persevering, and be assured that there is a purpose behind his every dealing in your life, even the harsh dealings, even the dealings that don't make sense to you, even the dealings in which he seems to have hidden himself from you. We have an advantage here, you know, that Job himself didn't have. We have the advantage in reading the book of Job and knowing that despite what Job thought about God being far removed from him, yet we know as the readers of the book that that was just never the case. God was never far away. He did have a purpose in grace that he worked in Job's life. And so does he have that same purpose in yours. May God help us then to persevere in the faith for his honor and glory. Let's close in prayer. And I think... Uh, Zach, we'll just close here in prayer. You don't have to uh, shoo Amanda to the front. We recognize that uh, parental duty calls, so we will forego a closing hymn, and let's just close in prayer and benediction at this time. Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring the service to an end, we thank thee that thou dost have a purpose in grace in every dealing that you take with us. We know, O oh Lord, that every dealing is not a pleasant dealing. Indeed, some dealings seem to be stern and harsh, and we 
uh, hardly know what to make of them. We wonder at times, as the psalmist wondered, if God has forgotten to be gracious. But Lord, we know from thy word that thou dost have a purpose and that thou art indeed near at hand. So help us, O Lord, in the times of trial and affliction. Help us to recognize thy hand of grace and mercy. And may we, O Lord, see a purpose in being conformed to our Savior. That is our desire. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be able to relate to him in some measure. We know, O Lord, that as bad as the sufferings of Job may seem in the eyes of men, they peel into nothing in comparison to what Christ himself suffered. So, Lord, increase our understanding and give us the grace to persevere in our faith. And now the Lord bless thee and keep thee. And the Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.